Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm very pleased to be talking to John Robertson, creator of The Dark Room, which is the most uh, <laughs> baffling, cruel, hilarious and exciting show slash experience that I've uh, ever seen and been a part of. I think I've seen it five or six times now all over the world. Um, it's a live action video game uh, where no good deed goes unpunished. We're going to talk about it in some detail later in this interview, but John is also an excellent clown, uh, a storyteller, a, a lunatic stand-up, and um, also uh, someone untroubled by a large persona. So we're going to get stuck into John and talk about his background and how he weaponized his outsider status to cope with uh, being bullied and also to cope with kind of being overindulged and middle class. So all of that's uh, about to happen right now. Just before we launch into that, just a quick reminder, the t-shirt pre-sale for the new incredible Fuck'em t-shirts designed by Lisa Richardson uh, is available at comedianscomedian.com slash merch. And all of my tour stuff is at comedianscomedian.com slash tour. That's all of that. We'll chat to you more about bits and bobs in the middle. You won't need to pin back your ears because he will blast them back. This is John Robertson. What is the difference between you and your stand-up persona? Well, the difference is that occasionally I sleep and um, my stand-up persona most certainly doesn't. Um, when... <coughs> what does that mean? Well, what, what does what, that mean? Well, what, that was a bit of a Brendan Burns yeah. thing to say. Well, no, no, no. It would have been a Brendan Burns thing to say if I then went, oh, and then sort of, you know, informed you about years of substance abuse. <laughs> um, no, what... Well, what I mean is that um, because I'm always coming on stage roaring, right, the thing about my guy is he al he's always in the process of arriving, right, as in he has arrived late for the show. Or, you know, like, whatever it is, he's been in the car and now is the one moment where he's going to be alive and he's going to attack and jump and scream and run around and cause merry havoc for whatever allocated time there is, right? And that's, that's the difference. It's like, whereas I can sit down and have a discursive conversation, um, you know, all conversations are discursive, um, for, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, right, it's just a, a man of action creating action spontaneously and then leaving. You know, and that, that's it. I just sort of... It's this kind of um, scorched earth sort of mentality of just kind of like one moment the town was quiet and then the bombs came and then the deluge stopped and everything was changed forever or at least for the next couple of hours, you know, that sort of thing. So what is it that appeals to you about... And I certainly... I have absolutely seen you do that in your own stand-up and your other projects that we'll, yeah. we'll go on to. Um, what is it about that that appeals to you. You're definitely a bomb-goes-off comedian. Yeah, well, that's... that's <laughs> yes, I, I bomb. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you, you definitely kind of parachute into yep. the gig, yep. explode, mm. and then run. Well, that, <laughs> well, Go that's... up the bridges and then run. What is it about that that appeals to you? Is that a choice? Oh, yes. Is that a thing you you, you're doing by design? Mm -hmm. And why? Well, the, that's... Um, that's uh, everything I've ever wanted to do. Um, in my life. That's what I like to do. Um, my grandfather said um, a thing, and he, he, he's sort of given to great, great wisdom, right? And on the face of it, this statement's actually horrifying. He was explaining the nature of family, 
right? And it helps. He's not actually a blood relative at all. He, um, he went, family is like the fire. If you get too close, you'll be burned. And if you're too far away, you'll be cold. So there's this comfortable middle, right? And for him, <clears throat> you know, whatever that means, okay, whatever, whatever he needs to do to have the people just sufficiently close to him that he won't harm them, not so far away that he won't, you know, they won't feel completely detached, right? And what I'm very good at doing, and friends of mine will, I think, happily back this up, right, where I am their intense friend, right, they don't need me all the time. They just need to know that I'm alive somewhere, doing something, and they're more than happy to see me once or twice a year, you know, and that's it. And it's like, it's, it's like that with the stand-up. It's like all I want to do is I want to turn up and I want to give you a time, a good, explosive, visceral time. It's been lovely. Now, after we've had this initial rush of violence, right, it's S&M rules, right? I'd hit you, now I'm going to hug you, now we're happy, all right, now I'm going, right? And that's what I like to do. And I've, I started enjoying doing that probably around the time I was 15 and started performing at science fiction conventions. Okay. That's, like, that's a really intense, like, five days of <clears throat> three... You know, like, hotel conventions in Australia are, like, 300 people to 500 people stuck in one hotel for five days together, mm-hmm. which I'll tell you, like, that show starts on a Thursday, right? You do stand-up on the Saturday night or the Sunday night when you've absorbed every in-joke, right? That's a fucking mass happening. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then when it's done, you can go. You know what I mean? And it's that moment of being like, I can come and I can be an ambassador for the community and I can be this and I can be a spokesman and I can do this, but then I'm going to go home, you know? And this is what stops me being a cult leader. You know, it's, the, it's a sort of lack of commitment, you know? It's like, come in, do the thing. We've had our fill of John. I've had my fill. We all feel fucking wonderful. And I go. Okay. And then I come back. So going into those convention environments when mm. you were 15, did yeah, you start yeah, yeah. going when you were 15 and mm. end up performing there quite early on? Immediately. Because you had found what exactly? Well, I recognised um, an opportunity, um, such as, like, instinctively, such as I'd never seen before, uh, to participate in an anarchic way uh, with a group of people who would be on a similar wavelength, uh, which, of course, is a deep luxury, you know, because what a nice thing uh, to go to something with your friends and meet a lot of other people who are quite a lot like your friends and then go and suddenly perform for them, right? So suddenly your friends are now your audience and they're still your friends. What a great luxury, you know, and that's what it was. And, like, for years, I would say to my wife, like, a really good show was this kind... You know, for me, is like a kind of just hugely packed in... It doesn't matter what the nature of the venue is, but it's a hugely packed in group of people engaging in an exchange of energy. You know, like, I'm going to give you as much energy as I have. I'm going to give you everything that I have. I'm the son of a preacher man, you know. He was never a charismatic evangelical, but I am, right? So we're going to go and do that and then you give me something back and that's what I'm interested in, you know. We find something live together 
Yeah, and that's what we—that's what would happen at these things. Admittedly, like what I'm telling you about, would first manifest itself as being like, all right, let's talk about the films of Stanley Kubrick. But by the end of it, right, people are like, all right, now we've talked about the films of Stanley Kubrick. Let's set fire to some torches and go and burn the fucking David Lynch panel. <laughs> you know, like that's the kind of that's the kind of thing. And you're just right in there. And you talked about like you and your group of friends and feeling yeah. like you had found this bigger community, this wider community mm. of people with the same interests. Yeah. Presumably, your friends weren't all doing the preacher man, like no. finding that place within it. So, so I want to drill down into yeah. why. You specifically, what did you get out of it that you were lacking elsewhere? What did it satisfy in you? Well, the thing was, I had always, I had always been that guy, um, anyway, right? I was always the loudest in the class, and that that kind of thing. I was not. Um, I only, I found out later, like this is, I, because I changed a few schools because kids used to beat the shit out of me, right? Because I was loud and obnoxious, wasn't funny, because I wasn't. Um, I deliberately didn't engage uh, with the things that made um, the other children uh, happy, particularly, you know? Um, it, w- it was just... Like, like what? Well, I, ju- I just mean things like particularly sport. You know, this was... A, I just... I couldn't get it right. And you grew up in Perth. I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, where sport was very important. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and we're now talking, you know, getting on 25 years ago, right? And... <laughs> It was uh, an, a really brutal place, um, you know, and it was. It was just violent and it was just stupid. And I was from, you know, my father was an Anglican priest and my mother was a kindergarten teacher, and um, they were much given to watching British comedy, you know, and this kind of thing. And, like, please don't, like, get that image of that sort of, you know, that, that sort of overweight Anglican vicar... You know, I mean, that sort of, you know, little bit of port of an evening, um, you know, oh, chortle, chortle, we're going to put on the Monty Python, you know, or this is a tremendously funny Peter Cook record or something. You know, he, my father was a, um, a journalist and a workaholic and a tremendous man who looked like Rasputin, you know, and he, um, you know, he used to like to, he'd go to the TAB to place a bet in wearing his bloody flip-flops and his shorts and all of this, but he was a tremendously well-spoken man, five foot ten, handsome, jet black hair, you know, all of this. Uh, but somehow or another, I was not necessarily, I had a great deal of aggression in me as a child. I wasn't able to mobilise it in an effective way when I was a kid because... Whereas the other children uh, were from a house where your father would routinely beat you and beat your mother and call you a cunt, you know, and all of this, right? We didn't do any of that in my home. You know, we loved each other. We were very happy. And um, so I would come in, you know, like to an argument at school trying to come up with some sort of subpar nine-year-old John Cleesean, you know, insult. You swivel-eyed git, this kind of thing. Whereupon about ten seconds later, of course, they, you know, they'd uttered a homophobic slur, kicked you in the balls, punched you in the face, and you were done, right? And this went on for some time. And then my mother, bless her, sort of mobilised me a bit and went, um, you know, why don't you just tell them their parents don't love them? So for a while I went from being unarmed to um, being pretty savagely armed. Uh, you know, I remember reducing a boy to tears. Did that work? Oh, did, or it, did, did it fucking ever? No, they couldn't. My mother's very perceptive. 
Couldn't have been anything more true. But they don't. They don't. You don't. You tell a, a bully their parents don't love them. My yeah. instinct would be that they would cry and then regroup and beat the shit out of you. Well, yeah, they did. But fuck it, they cried. You know. And then to be fair as well, I mean, by that point, oh god, I mean, you know, with, I'm not. I'm not complaining about any of this. It was a wonderful little journey. You know. I'm just saying that I was set up. Well, I set myself up in primary school as an outsider. Yeah. Right? But not a dangerous one. Right? Sure. I didn't know enough, right? And then I sort of managed to be like bitchy, you know, like my mother. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a mother's not bitchy, but you know what I mean? It's that kind of just go out there and tell them, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I did that, but because I was well spoken, the uh, the teachers liked me. So the difference would be like they'd be crying in the playground. Why are you crying? John said your mother doesn't love you. He's probably right. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Whereas if I was crying, what happened? Damien hit me. Mm. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, or as, or as I recall in one particular instance when my father was in hospital, another child went, I hope your father dies of cancer. I burst into tears and I seem to remember the teacher being like, you know his father's in hospital. And yeah. so it was a, an interesting thing of like, you know. I, okay. Yeah, I was, I was sort of coddled by adults uh, I, I On account of being well, articulate. I didn't, well, I didn't swear, yeah. you know, and I was a peculiar child, you know. But it was interesting that the moment I got to high school, I went to an all-boys school for a while, and I tell you, the moment that happened, you know, oh, yeah, uh, it was pretty much like, yeah, they're right to hit him. They should hit him. The moment which happened? So oh, just the moment I changed schools, went to an all-boys school. Um, oh, the teachers? Yeah, the te the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm making a man out of him. <laughs> Yeah, very, okay. very much that. So, I mean, I recognise certain parallels there with, with where I was at, feeling mm. like an outsider and kind of taking refuge in... I was kind of a crap goth. Oh, oh yes, yes. Um, and I remember kind of picking up those sorts of things, role-playing games, you know, the, mm. the, the kind of classic suburban... In my case, yep. suburban... Oh, uh, suburban. I'm, yep. I'm trying to establish an identity that is based 100% on an alternative to everything around me. Sport, religion, yep. all of the trappings of the all boys school that I mm. that I went to for a while. I am setting myself up in opposition of that. Yes. Now, is it? Am I right in thinking that because your school certainly sounds a bit more brutal than mine, yeah. you had to commit to that probably more than I did? Well, um, well yeah. It, it was like in somewhere in around 1990 and what I'm getting where yeah. I'm going with this is you're still doing it oh yeah <laughs> oh. do you know what I mean oh yeah well it was a very valuable skill because, well think, think of it like this okay because I, I, I would not dispute that as a statement at all right I mean the fact that I you know I know how to love and I know how to have a an, you know a fulfilling home life and I know how to make my friends feel wonderful and I know all of that that's by the by from the fact that a lot of the time I like to manifest myself as a bug-eyed loon, mm. right? But it's like, um, you got to... Okay, Perth, Western Australia is a small, small town, right? But if you are different, you are noticed. You are noticed immediately. And, of course, there's a great power to that if you're able to not be vulnerable, right? So it's like when I see... Uh, there's, I've got a lot of trans mates there. And I'm very well. Look, I, I genuinely, a lot of the time, when I hear that they're just going outside, I fear for their lives. Mm. And I appreciate that it's not 25 years ago. And I appreciate that that town's made a huge difference. And I appreciate now that even the people um, who would be 
the ones who might attack the transgendered people there, now dress in manners that are so colourful and so flamboyant that 25 years ago they'd have been the ones being savagely beaten by the people who used to attack me, mm. right? But the thing is, because it's small and everyone can then go, oh, there's that guy, without, you know, not small enough that we know who he is or his name or where he lives, right? But just that guy, like we make characters, you know, yeah. like there's a guy called Mad Dog who's got a bike, you know, he rides around on a bicycle, he yells at people, he's gone viral several thousand times. He's just, men- just a mentally ill, fat guy, mm-hmm. lives in the middle of, you know, a, town, a place called Midland, right, all this sort of thing. It means, of course, people are looking at you, you can mobilise that, right? So all I did was just, and this was, I, have, I had no knowledge of the Matrix for, like, being a, even though I was moving towards hanging out with the shit goths, right? I'm, I'm just going to check here. You mean literally the film The Matrix? Yeah, literally, no. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, 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 please. I was aware yeah. of the actual Matrix. Yeah, but I tell you, before I, before I was awakened, uh, yeah. No, please, please do not suspect a conspiracy theory is now coming. And then the lizard people and the Zionists. Yeah, oh, none of that crap. No, um, you know, Christ, I, I like to participate in the simulation of parallel worlds. I don't think I live in one. Um, what I did was, uh, shortly after the Columbine High School massacre, I uh, got my mother to buy me a black woolen trench coat. Uh-huh. And that worked beautifully on the people of uh, Western Australia. So you got an identity as yeah. someone yeah. that we should worry about. We should, yep, let's be concerned. Let's keep him at arm's yeah. length. Well, that's the, and the thing was, right, the more I did that, the more people wanted to know me. And yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, like you kind of weaponized being a crap goth. That's it. Very much so. And it's like I used to sit down, and like I practiced the Hannibal Lecter thing. Sure. And I did it to people who went past. You know, like if they had bullied me at school, they'd be like, "Oh, hey, John." And then oh, they would fuck off. And it was a like a lovely moment and a, a, just a performance. More than anything else. Did anyone ever see through that performance? Well, no, because there was something to back it up. Which was what? Violence. <laughs> you no. were a violent kid. Um, I was violent if faced with violence. You know, like, I, it would be... I never attacked anybody. But if I was about to be attacked, then I would fight. And I, I've, never, I've never thrown a punch, you know, successfully. Right? I've never <laughs> successfully thrown a punch... But, you know, I would spit on you. I would start screaming about AIDS as I just started trying to unload any fluid in my body. I pulled my fingernail off talking to a kid because he decided that he wanted to just... I won't even bother saying the words he said to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. Just an endless, you know, stream of homophobic slurs on a bus. And I went, oh, really, am I? Am I? Well, I must have AIDS then. Excuse me. I tore off my fingernail. I flicked blood in his eye. Fixed that up. Not going to lie, he actually wanted to be my friend about two weeks later. You know? And that was, you know, all of this was just, what you know, something to do, I suppose. Now, I would imagine that most people who... Uh, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would imagine that most people who undergo that kind of... Um, contrivance. Do you know what I mean? You kind of you built a character for yourself yeah. in order in order to protect yourself ultimately. Yeah. To let you like you felt yeah. like it. From what I'm I'm hearing, yeah. I think you felt like an outsider, and so you contrived this oh. character of like an uber outsider. Just, just in case anyone is um, sort of going, Jesus, he sounds deeply unpleasant. What an overreaction uh, to his surroundings. Um, yeah, 
please understand, I was never one of the goths, right? I, whilst all of this is happening, I'm at home with my mother and we're listening to folk music and we're listening to John Denver and we're listening to Neil Diamond and eventually I, I, think, I think my musical rebellion was I got some Frank Zappa and some Warren Zevon albums of my very own and yeah. up until then I'd only owned best of the 80s and 60s compilations, you know, things like that. And the trench coat that I'm wearing, you must understand, I also wore with a surf shirt or a Hawaiian shirt. So if anything, um, a goth said to me once, he went, you dress like Silent Bob but you have the hair of Jay. You know, and this was meant to be of great wisdom, but he, he then, about 10 seconds later, threw himself off the balcony of the place we were staying at. Um, we, it was just a party, mm-hmm. and it was a one-storey place, but mm-hmm. it had a veranda, and he threw himself onto the grass to sort of show everyone how interesting he was, but unfortunately somebody else had already shown everyone how interesting they were though, by smashing a bottle in the glass. So, you know, we had a lot of... We laughed. Anyway, um, the, the, what I was... Sorry, Stu, what I was trying to get to there is that um, please understand that there is a linchpin moment here, which is the suicide of my father, um, which happened in 1996. So right around that time, right, that's when it really goes into overdrive, you know, because it, it, then I have, rather than it just being, oh, you talk weird, or oh, you don't like the things we like, or you're too loud, or you move your hands in a weird way, or, or whatever... Um, it instead becomes, you you just keep talking about death, <laughs> you know, which I then did for a long time. My first girlfriend's mother at one point turned to me and went, you know, you're obsessed with your father's death. And I said to her, well, you, you keep trying to live through your daughter. And then that car ride really passed in silence for some time. <laughs> you know, we get on beautifully now. <laughs> So this is John. Huge fun talking to John. He's such a larger-than-life character, you know? You think to yourself, what was Brian Blessed like when he was in his early 30s? You know, big. He's just a big, huge guy. And um, he is... And like, I don't mean even sort of physically his size. He's not at all, but his, his personality is like several times bigger than the room. Um, and I'm really appreciative uh, to John, who I like very much, as you can hear, uh, for letting me probe him a little harder than I would a stranger on exactly where that persona comes from and how much it's representative of his real self. I think he gives us some really interesting stuff on that. Um, we're going to do a lot of dark room chats towards the end of this episode. No extras on the show today. It, we kind of ran to time and I basically... It would make sense if all the darkroom stuff was the extras, but I can't divvy it up and I don't want to keep any of that stuff quiet. So uh, I hope you enjoy all of this. But if you would like extra material from previous episodes, including the belter from last week with Laura Lex and all of the Jimmy Carr, Russell Howard, uh, super famous guy, exciting stuff as well. All of that now is at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. You can join the Insiders Club with uh, a small regular monthly donation to support the podcast. And um, and I don't ever really talk about what I use that money for, but really, at the moment, it's paying the hosting fees, it pays for the podcast website, it pays for some social media stuff, um, and it pays for me to be able to take risks on live shows, and it pays for my time in promoting and researching and editing the show, which is a huge part of my life now. I, it wasn't planned to be. Um, but um, all of the people who are in the Insiders Club are the only people who pay me to do this. So uh, if you would like to join that, if you're enjoying or appreciating the show, 
and uh, you would like to support it. It used to be that supporting the show was a sort of charitable endeavour where people would donate because they liked it and they wanted it to continue and to thrive. Uh, and now you can still uh, donate to the show for those reasons, but now you also get something with your Insiders Club membership. Uh, you get access to the private podcast, the Workspace app, where we flick emails to each other throughout the day. And uh, and that is, it's pretty exclusive. There's about 200 people on that, um, 200, it might be as much as 250, but not all of them are super active. So if you want to inveigle your way into the lives of the insiders uh, of this podcast, and you can really make a, a very tangible difference to the things I do, how I do them, who I invite next, um, you can become an insider. So please join up at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. That's all of that. The, the stand-up tour is uh, selling a, a staggering number of tickets. Who sells 20 tickets over a weekend in Leamington Spa? This guy. Brackets also got two thumbs. Um, and uh, uh, that's, that was very encouraging to see. Uh, so if you would like to come and see me in any of those places, and they are in the first part of next year, the uh, the mini part of the tour, which is doing largely southwestern Midlands, they are Maidenhead, Falmouth, Cheltenham, Crawley, Reading, Leamington Spa, Salisbury, Oxford, Bromsgrove, Plymouth, and then the Soho Theatre in June next year. Is it? No, what's a five? May. <laughs> oh god in may next year so uh you can go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to find out about that and i've been absolutely loving chucking little bits of that tour show in some of the stand-up sets i've been doing recently thanks if you came to see me in gosport lovely little club there run by some uh, keen young people and uh, uh what's what's it called is it the alva bank if you're near gosport go to the alva bank really enjoyable uh, a show under very weird circumstances um, and wherever you've seen me recently thanks people who came and saw me at Comedy Carnival in London that was tremendous fun that was one of those oh I, I talked about it last week but uh, I shan't bang on about that but really good fun so um, that's all of that if you missed the Laura Lex episode now is the time to go back and listen to it because it really was a belter thanks for all your feedback on that and um, people have been tweeting at ComComPod and the same on IG or the Gram or Instagram if you're old uh, you can uh, you can get in touch with me and tell me how you're enjoying the show, what you'd like to see more of. You can join the Facebook group and become part of that community of kindred comcom spirits as well. I just pronounced the word kindred, kindred, thus making it sound like a grunge metal band from the 90s. That will do for now. Go and see. I'll just quick plug for some of John's stuff. If you go to thedarkroomgame.com, we'll talk about the game a little bit more at the end, thedarkroomgame.com. That's available on Steam for PC and Mac. And John's website is thejohnrobertson.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Robotron. Let's get back to this episode, recorded, as I forgot to mention earlier on, at the Place Hotel in York Place in Edinburgh. So if you are a baller and a high roller, you might be able to afford a lovely night there. But thanks to them, I'm very grateful for their help in giving me space to record during the festival. This is almost the end of the, the festival ones. Who have we got next? Who have we got next? We've got um, Laura Davis. We've still got Laura Davis to get. And next week we might do Jake Johansson, who's a fantastic... Um, how can I describe Jake? He is just a kind of uh, a globe-trotting uh, American act. He was over here supporting Russell Peters on his arena tour earlier this year, um, and that one has been in the can for a while. So we've got Jake Johansson to come. Uh, Laura Davis uh, is the last of the Edinburgh ones. I've got Doc Brown coming up, so questions for Doc Brown, please, over at the uh, the Facebook group, well, where you can also uh, ask questions for Phil Ellis and Toby Haydoke. But get your skates on, because I'm recording with both of those guys tomorrow. Um, and Ed Axel, the fabulous bumbling. I mean, if we've we've gone from the lunatic clown of John Robertson to the 
I mean, the anti-clown Ed Axel, it's a, it, he's an, a phenomenal comic. I've never seen a, a room so comprehensively split <laughs> as when watching Ed Axel. So uh, lots more stuff, and I'm doing booking for new guests right now. So get into... Oh, and Foster Q as well. Jess Foster Q is in the can, as is someone else who I apologise for forgetting. Now, it's a good time, basically, to get in touch and n- nudge me towards particular acts. Uh, if you are a comedian and you'd like to be considered and you've got... I mean, it was three. It's sort of three to five now. We've been... A lot of the a lot of the acts I've been doing recently haven't been as famous, um, but they have... I've been so enjoying getting my teeth into conversations with uh, people with a decent body of work to look back over. So if you are in that position yourself, then by all means, uh, put yourself forward using the code phrase, the new code phrase, now that I actually have... A beautiful daughter. Um, the new code phrase. Can I offer to share you a chip? <laughs> there we go. That way I'll know that you're a listener to the show and uh, and not just a flagrant self-promoter, but I'll get plenty of those as well. That's fine. That was a bit of a chat. Let's get back to the the high volume lunacy of John Robertson. So you were a kind of, let's not use the term goth, but let's stick with the idea of an outsider well, yeah. and a kind of a self-made, I'm a kind of, like a, like a, like the Hannibal, a bit of Hannibal Lecter, yeah. a bit of the Matrix, a kind of self-made yeah. collage yes, of... But, but all of that, but five foot eight and pimply and with shit hair. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. And not as kind of physically, you, like, yeah. you look like these days, you look yeah. like quite strong. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't then. Sure. My, okay. mo- my mother enrolled me in a gym um, around that time, but unfortunately it was a 20 minute walk from our house and I did not walk 20 minutes back <laughs> in those days. And I distinctly remember going down there once, lifting up a weight um, like they do in prisons. Right, you know, doing the, the jail lift. Yeah, yeah. And giggling like a loon because I was like, I'm in a movie. And then I put it down and left the gym and didn't go back for another 15 years. And when your father killed himself, yeah. that, what did that do? Did that accelerate or kind of harden or kind of ossify this, yeah. this character mm. that was serving you by, by making you feel like, okay... You had a sense of identity. Yeah. You turned being an outsider into something positive that you felt yeah. you could win. And then something horrific, something yeah. horrendous happened to you. Like, yeah, because, like, up until my father's death, I was happy. <laughs> I was happy, you know. And I was happy to be um, what I was. And I, this, this is what I'd learned over the course of years, that in the sense of a general schoolroom, right, everyone would know who I was. Everyone would listen to what I had to say, for good or ill, right? Whatever that meant. But I and my friends would be our cluster, right? Like my my beautiful friend Tom, who I've known since he was nine and I was ten, we used to look the same, so that was of great help. And we'd sit together at the back of the class and we'd do cartoons together, right? And there's a sense of belonging there, you know? And not necessarily us against the world, but just here we are and we do this and we created our own little world. Yeah, and there's that feeling. And then when my father dies, um, well, things go, things go quite numb for a while. And then I, a li- may I get very anxious um, when I like on school camps for a while. So there's a lot of you know very unbecoming weeping, you know, in like early. Well, well now we're talking about early adolescence, 
right? So, you know, and we're moving into a, a place populated by boys, right? And my answer to everything was my father liked it, so it has to be good. You know, like I used to get bullied because I liked Star Trek back when that was still a thing people cared about. And I just remember wheeling on kids and being like, my father liked it and he killed himself, so it's fine, right? Despite the fact that if any bully had actually had any nous, they would have been like, your father killed himself because he liked Star Trek, you know? And there would have been no... I wouldn't have liked I it. hope there's no bullies listening to this who oh, att attempt to learn how to oh, uh, upset people more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, turn up. John Robertson. <laughs> yeah, the there you go. The Comedian's Comedian Podcast can be abused. <laughs> there you go. About to, Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, it just became a, um, a, strange, a strange little thing. And um, so, do you do you see the do you see a kind of a uh, what am I trying to say? The person you are on stage, yeah, not dissimilar to the person you are now. I mean, this is yeah. you know. Yeah. I wonder, and I'm I'm going to challenge you on this because I like you and respect your work. Oh, go for it. Know each other. Go for it. Do you recognise that there is a performance going on the entire time? Oh, when I'm doing it. When you're right now. I feel yeah, yeah. you are performing right Ev now. Okay. Everyone, not everyone I know, but a lot of people have challenged me on that. Uh, you know, a lot, right? And to be honest with you, when we started talking, right, and I found myself, I fell into a speech pattern uh, that falls somewhere between my grandfather and um, a comedian called John Clark from New Zealand. They sound quite similar. And, yeah, I don't know. That's just something that's been happening, but that's been going on the length of my fucking life. Well, sure. Well, this you is... Know. I mean, yeah. I, th I suppose that's my supposition, is yeah. that you created that character as a kid well, and in a way in which... But um, And I, I don't... I, maybe character is the wrong word, but a voice. Well, what in is a comedian's just, way. Well, you to speak, to speak, just to speak to that idea... Um, a lot of what I do, uh, it, it ends up being, yeah, there, there's like, I, I mean, I don't know, I think a lot of people do this, but, you know, like when you have a series of voices that come out on different occasions, right, it's like if I want people to, if I want to be gentle with people, I'm suddenly my mate Tom, right, and, oh, terribly sorry, hello, how are you, um, yeah, can we, can we just, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> And I find it like when I'm in a queer space, when I, you know, I can be just a, f a fabulous flamboyant theatrical duck. You know, if, if I'm hanging out with old theatre types, I'm them, you know, and we have a wonderful time. We get on really beautifully. And um, yeah, I mean, that's just something that happens. Like, I've, <laughs> when I'm in pain, for instance, people don't believe how much pain I'm in because they think that I'm performing. And so I'm not, there, I just have very exaggerated characteristics. Are there you know. circumstances or relationships mm -hmm. where you are even more your relaxed self than you are now? Well, yeah, I think um, one thing I worry about with podcasts is the, that observer effect and, you know, that sense of, oh, well, is this meant... What, you know, like, is, is everything I'm saying an ambit claim or is, is this a thesis or whatever? Um, yeah, of course there are moments of great relaxation and, where, you know, in which nothing happens. You know, I watch the television. You know, I don't actually watch TV, I watch Netflix, but that's not the same, you know. It's that kind of thing. And we just, yeah, we quietly sit down, we do all sorts of things. 
but yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate... Like, when you talk to your mum, do you use the voice that you're currently talking to me with? Yeah, yeah. I actually, probably my accent gets a lot broader because she's got a broad Australian accent, which you'll be devastated to find out about. <laughs> um, do, you, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, I know, no, I know. Do you know I know. mean, like, I, I, yeah. I see you as someone who is... Yeah. I don't mean that you're always on, mm. but I feel like you've decided to be who you are. In the yeah. same way, you know Tom Tuck. Oh, yeah. You know, chatting to Tom Tuck is oh, different to yeah. chatting to me, right? Because of course. Tom Tuck is busy being Tom Tuck. Yeah. Whereas what I try and do is just kind of, like, or not try and do anything. You, mm. One, if I feel that I'm in performance mode or yeah. interviewer mode, mm. I will try to stop and go, oh, okay, it's just me. I'm just sort of, yeah, here yeah. I am, it's, you know. Well, the thing is the, yeah, like, what, what we're calling a performance, right? Mm. It's me. You know, well, this is my question. If you've yeah. been doing it, but I wonder if the reason why you are who you are mm. is because your your kind of uh, collaged outsider identity yeah. then had this impact of your father's death, and then which kind of solidified, of... and you went, "Well, I am this then," because if I'm this, I'm protected. I I think that's a really I think that's a really nice idea, and I think that's a really romantic one. <laughs> you know, and and I think that if if there were a film made of my life, I'd absolutely we'd want go to, with that. I'd want to push. <laughs> God, who wouldn't want to push that myth? Jesus, you know, have a have the fucking low budget BBC miniseries about it. Just call it John, you know, Robbo. Um, no, I I feel probably what I am really is a. Uh, is a very indulged uh, middle-class child with um, overt exhibitionist tendencies. And I, I think that's probably it. Because, I mean, you, you've got to understand that whilst we've begun this with a sense of, you know, oh, and then this happened and, I was, and the environment was bad, right? Uh, for the first 11 years, yeah, 11 years of my life, I could not have been loved more by my parents. And, like... When you consider that my... I mean, I didn't understand my father's depression at all, right? But when you consider that he was a... You know, like, I've seen the list of medications he was on and there's antipsychotics in there, there's all manner of stuff. So when you consider first that he was dealing with his symptoms and then he's dealing with the side effects of all of that and there wasn't a single moment where he wasn't able to make me feel deeply loved, right? Which people... You know, shit... I've seen, I've known people with depression who it, 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 it's impossible. You know, they can't they can't make you feel loved. They don't feel loved. They can't feel you know, they can't love themselves. He he didn't love himself, you know, but he was still able to do that. My mother was unendingly supportive, you know. And so my whole childhood, like I'm the dress up box kid, you know. There's actually the the point you made, I mean Christ, I think in about nineteen eighty eight, I'm be three years old. My um, father, because he was a journalist as well, he wrote a column in which he's talking about watching me play with the dress-up box. And in it, I go and I, I'm a fireman and then three minutes later I'm somebody else and she, he just looked at it and just went, is he having an identity crisis? Rather than this is natural play because I, I you know, would take on personas and discard them very, very swiftly. You know, I suppose I've always been doing that but the... The difference is that I can't be bothered with the exception of... And please don't think, oh, hey, look at him, crowbar a segue here, because I'm not trying to leave this conversation. I'm as fascinated with myself as I am with anything. Um, yeah, and actually, no, you've hit a really good point, because when I think about the people I admire, 
right, I think about, they're all character performers. Like Barry Humphreys, who, you know, I don't, pretty sick of him at the minute, but, um, you know, it's somebody who puts on a whole bunch of different performances which are influenced by people he's known, right? And it's, the, it's a cabaret, you know? And I'm thinking about John Cleese and Spike Milligan and all of this, but particularly Milligan, right? Because whilst he would perform as a bunch of different characters and he had a fascinating well of life experience to draw on, right? He was very, like, most of the time, he just looks like him. You know what I mean? So I suppose what I like to do is I like to be a lot of other people but filtered through my face. I don't like to dress up anymore. Mm-hmm. I like to dress up in things that make me feel good and then go from there. If, that, if that's a thing. That's my way of, like, on stage of harnessing the power of, you know, what I've learned how to do and go. And off stage, right, I mean, you want to know how much of this is a performance, right? My wife, <laughs> my wife said to me three months ago, Stop wearing blue jeans. When you go out, you need to be on brand. (laughs) You should look like you do when you go out. You said in your uh, in the show that I saw, which is a few years ago now, was oh, it two yes. years ago now, Let's uh, Redecorate? Yeah, Let's Redecorate, yes. yes. Which yes. was you with the, the image of which was a very 80s sledgehammer, the cop show style kind of gun metal. <laughs> you with a gun in your mouth and the mm. big, uh, big, big hair, white hair sticking up hair. Let's Redecorate, which was a show about suicide. Yes, it was. And it was a show about the death of your friend. Yep, yep. Not Tom, he's still with us. Um, sure. But yeah, that was... Um, you seem, from the stand-up of yours that I've seen, to you like what? What kind of style would you say you have as a stand-up? Well, I yeah, I I started pissing off other stand-ups for a while because I was being like, oh, I'm not a stand-up, I'm a clown, right? Which is a deeply pretentious statement, and especially you know, especially I'm a clown who talks, and does jokes. I'm clowning, yeah, clown who talks, and does jokes, and yeah, you know, and. Good night, good night, Jonglers Portsmouth, you know, that, that sort of thing. Like, oh, yeah, how wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm a clown, and as I just spent the last six hours in the car with you guys, we're all talking about stand-up. Well, as it turns out, mm. I'm from a totally different discipline, you know, like that sort of thing. Now, I, I don't know. We, classifications are difficult. Um, I like, you know, involving high-energy, high-octane improv act, five jokes... Nice suit, that kind of thing. That, that's how I think of it. Um, and also, I mean, and that's without obviously getting into my other career, but there we go, you know? That's what I reckon. Because one, and I don't know what you're about to say, but one thing with Let's Redecorate is that was the last time that I had anything of any, like, real, just anything really personal to say. And, um, I, and I won't... You know, I, I I'm not going to go and put myself through a feeling, you know what I mean, just to get a show. You know what I mean? So it's why the last few years my shows have been, you know, 2016 was Arena Spectacular, which is, in, you know, Betty described as John takes 50 minutes to put on a jacket, right, which people loved. And then we had my show Dominant, which was John spends 50 minutes and then picks up a whip and starts smacking people with the whip while singing Frank Sinatra's My Way which the same people enjoyed. And then this year's Sweaty Sexy Party Party, which is I've got a, a live blues band, and we start with me beating members of the audience and having them beat me. And my back is fucked, incidentally. I'll show you when we're done. 
Um, you know, and it's just become, all right, it's, it's that original thing that I always wanted to do than had been doing at the sci-fi conventions, which is we're going to come here, we're all going to be of a like mind, and we're going to do whatever takes our fancy. You know, last night we marched on the bar. You know, we just we turned on the people who were in the upstairs bar and we all went upstairs chanting the word beans. And then we went outside and I covered myself with beans. It's actually quite depressing the more I think about it. <laughs> so it was a wonderful night, but fuck, I was cold. So you really enjoy being kind of a, a catalyst for something to go off. Yeah, that's kind like of something what to happen. Turns you on about it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. And, and are there kind of other stand-ups who do something similar to that that you are inspired by? Because um, you you mentioned the kind of a, the more kind of character, yeah, kind of acts. But are there are there other kind of people in the last ten years worth of Edinburgh, say, who you've seen and gone, that's the kind of thing I'm aiming for? Not. Not really. Um, well, yeah, like, like just sort of flat out not really. Because, like, I mean, I admire, I admire a few people, but it's, it's things like I... When, when I think of stand-ups in the last ten years that I've seen, when we're in this context, I admire the people who, when I've been doing something, have gone, oh, I'll, I'll get in on that, and have enjoyed it and have, and have lifted it up, you know. Like, there's a beautiful clip from the, um, uh, the then Perth International Comedy Festival where me, Brendan Burns, Sammy J and Randy are sitting on top... Literally, literally we're on top of a building. We're on top of um, the theatre. Mm-hmm. Not, not, the, not as high as the theatre can go, but we're on top of... Um, we're probably about as, about as high as... Really about as high as that, whatever, that lin- upper lintel there. Mm-hmm. Right? And... I had proposed that I would crowd surf and Brendan walks past seeing me in front of my crowd and then gets up and goes, I'll show you how to crowd surf, do it at Glastonbury. And then Sammy, Joe and Randy get up, which is great because, of course, <laughs> one of them's a puppet, you know. And we all crowd surf, you know. And, like, I admired them because for them it was second nature to go, that looks like fun, we'll do it, yeah. you know. We're not going to try to take anything away from it. We're just going to do the thing that you're doing and it just becomes a beautiful, natural bit of chaos and that sort of thing. Like, um, I mean, Bob Slayer is very good, you know, at, at corralling people into doing things, but I think, I think his approach is more low energy than mine, you know. Like, we met each other at the fir- at, in 2010 and, uh, you know, that, that was eye-opening to go, oh, yeah, you know, like, he, there he is, he's running around naked and things like that. It's like, oh, that's cool. That's cool, but I didn't look at that and go, I want to do that. Sure. Although I did jump in and play with him a whole bunch of times. We had a really nice time. I have a very fond memory that he used to do a, a spot where he would... Um, he had a dartboard over his penis and he'd put goggles on and um, people would just throw darts, right? You know, nice thing to do. It was about five in the afternoon. <laughs> it was good. Uh, I really liked that bit. And I would run in from my show when I was done and I would invade his show and Bob was always very welcoming of that and I suggested that he should obviously do the um, that spot nude, right? And Bob took me at my word and he took his clothes off and I took my clothes off and he put the dartboard there and this dart just sailed right into his thigh, you know? And then he um, wondered, you know, we got some badinage out of whether he should take it out or whatever. He took it out and then... <laughs> 
hands it back to the woman. It's like, now, John. Hmm. And that, that I had to explain about blood transfusion at that point and go, well, that's how we actually, Jesus, you know, I had to tap out. But that was nice. I mean, there's a rock and roll thing there. That's fun. But, you yeah, know, like mostly the people I admire, uh, well, you know, they're just of a great variety of disciplines. And when you're... Do you write your shows down or do you write on stage? Because I, I, I'm aware that Let's Redecorate was kind of a departure from the usual kind of... Uh, not formless chaos, but maybe directionless yeah. or, or themeless chaos. I'm not quite sure. I learned there was a departure. I remember I made some notes at the time because of things that particularly made me laugh. Why does Anarchy have a logo? Uh-huh. Which I think is a really... That's such a pithy little bang. Like, Thank that's you. a great... Why does Anarchy, have a, logo? Does Anarchy have a logo? Later in the same show, you said nothing fixes mental health less than comedy except theatre. Yes. Which I really enjoyed. And the, the lines like those mm. are are ones that I, I wonder whether those arose naturally on stage or arose out of improvisation on stage or whether that was a kind of sit down and write the ideas. The, the anarchy line uh, is a tweet that I put out uh, every few years. Uh, that was something that came on a spur of a moment, but obviously while in front of that writing platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing fixes mental health <laughs> less than comedy except theatre is an on-stage improv. Okay. Uh, taken from the general statement, nothing nothing fixes mental health less than comedy, and then I just went, except theatre, just one day, and we just found it. Um, if we're, I mean, if we're going to talk about structure, uh, let's redecorate, actually, what, what, I, what I'm doing now, and have been doing for the last three years, I would say probably um, represents a departure, and, and is the departure, because from 2009 to 2015, um, a lot of my work, except the darkroom, uh, was very heavily scripted, like, okay. or like almost like a novel, a lot of it. And, and t- to be honest, overwritten, like very much so. And, and also not... Um, while they were stand-up shows, they were not written as stand-up shows. They were written as monologues, right? And what people kept telling me, and they were right, is that the best ones that I was doing were the ones where there was room to breathe and the crowd felt, you know, drawn in and like they could participate. So, like, the difference is in 2000... No, 2008, I do a show called Love of a Pitiful Instrument, which is me with my ukulele. It's, you know, it's a good, nice little beginner there. And it's just pretty much me saying, I have a ukulele, I do my then stand-up spots, play the song, right? 2009, I do a show called Don't Swallow, um, oh, you're keeping your head above water in an ocean filled with shit, uh, which was just a long rant, almost almost remarkably like I was 24 years old and felt like I had something to say. 2010, I do a nifty history of evil, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a history lecture, but at high octane volume. Take that up to the fringe. What are the best shows? The late night ones where people are playing along and doing shit, right? 2011, I start overdoing it, and I write two shows. Uh, one was Blood and Charm, Disturbing Stories for Disturbing Bedtimes, I'm exploring themes of bondage and suicide, and The Nature of Truth, which, oh, oh, so overwhelmingly hackneyed in that sense of scope, um, but worked. What do you mean hackneyed in that well, sense of scope? In the sense of, oh, I'm going to, oh, okay. I'd written it because of this. 
I went to see a tremendous act, who I won't name, right, because I don't think they know about this. Uh, and the way they were then starting their show, which was a storytelling show, storytelling being very in vogue at the time, <laughs> uh, was just because the things in this didn't happen doesn't mean they're not true. And I remember, because that was the first statement and the feeling of rage and loathing that I felt upon hearing that as the opening of, a, of something made me go, all right, I'm going to now go home and I'm going to take the most important things in my life, which is my father's suicide and S&M, and I'm going to mix it with a whole bunch of fairy stories, right, like rewritten weird fairy stories and, like, and just odd fantasies about teeth and shit, right, and I'm going to present it all like it's not real and then I'm going to show that some of it is and I'm going to do this just to be the inverse of that, you know? And as a result, I put together a show that when we took it here, right, we took it to Edinburgh, three-star reviews across the board, and they went, John Robertson's father killed himself. Well, all our dads do. <laughs> Three stars. Took it to Melbourne. John Robertson is a deeply sensitive young man. Four stars. Right? Um, and, yeah, it was entirely about... I, the, the greatest part of it was that after going through a whole bunch of shit and this was a, it would lead to a segue where I talked about a job I had where I used to have to train the cops, right? I was an actor helping train police officers and you could have a shift where you'd pretend to be a corpse, right? And I turned up for work one day and they gave me a um, piece of electrical wire and they went, oh, just wrap that round your throat. Uh, you've hung yourself. We just need you to lie down. And that was exactly the thing my father had used. And, which was a big start to the day. And I told them that, and they still kind of insisted I do it, so I did it. And, you know, I just spent eight hours of that day lying on this fake floor while being discovered by various, um, you know, trainee police officers. And, um, yeah, what happened was the actress who um, was playing my grieving friend in this scene at one point just overdid it for fun and just smashed open this door and just decided that she was going to have a full-on grieving fit and jumped on me and just began crying and sort of, as she did it, she began to jovially grind herself into me. And so it, the show finished with me going, well, this didn't happen to my father, you know, because I'm getting humped, you know, right? Sure. All this. But that had come just after a story about a hipster rapist uh, being brutally torn apart by two hands that shoot out of a vagina, right? Uh, which, yeah, w was always followed by the statement, and that's how you tell a horror story, right? And people would go, oh, fuck, it's not real! Mm. Oh, my God! Like, it was just this nice little reveal. So that was me working with artifice, right? But the same year, I did a show called Dragon Punch, right? And here's the difference. Blood and Charm is 11,000 words long. Dragon Punch, 7,000 words long. Room to breathe, room to play. What's that show about? Oh, I tried to do the, the dragon punch, the Sharyukin from Street Fighter, when my father-in-law got into a fight at a family barbecue, right? And my wife said, go, deal with it. So I went, oh, Sharyukin, and I missed him, right? And he, I landed, and he went, oh, that was a good try, and then we all ate, you know, nice moment, okay? 7,000 words. That show won awards in Australia mm -hmm. because it was fun, mm -hmm. you know? And I, you know, and I was like, okay, I split my career because I had this kind of weighty, overtly heavy darkness here 
with like Blood and Charm was not fun. Like the best thing anyone ever said coming out of that show was just write the book. You know, just write the book, mate. Jesus. Yeah. You know, we can't, you know. So like this moment of going, shit, we've turned up and there's some serious fucking William Burroughs Kafka bullshit. Was that a reasonable uh, critique? Just write the book? Mate? Absolutely. Absolutely just write the book, mate. And then the next year, I turn up, I've got Dark Room, right? You know, the live action video game, principally based on improv and audience interaction. Mm-hmm. I did a show called The Old Whore, which was a complete misfire. I was trying to deal with issues of colonialism and I didn't, oh, just the most ham-fisted bullshit white boy oh my god it was awful I tried let's put it this way my intentions were good but it's quite telling that in 2013 when I come back to Fringe that's the first time I don't have two shows I just have dark room because I've given up I remember walking into the hive the first time I became aware of John Robertson's The Dark Room and uh, I felt like I was 16 again and <laughs> discovering something magical and fringy. And it was one of those things which is the whole reason I come here and have been coming here for 25 years. When you walked on stage with a sort of big projector screen behind you that said the dark room, you came on stage wearing a rig that was lighting your face quite badly, but mm-hmm, nonetheless, mm-hmm. The, the idea was clear this guy is being a floating head. Yep. And you said, in a voice not dissimilar to Bane, you said, uh, give me a cheer if you've been to the dark room at this festival before. And half the room went nuts. And yeah. I went, what the fuck have I missed? <laughs> what have I been missing out on? And I was completely hooked and have since seen the dark room several times. <laughs> Yay. Um, it, it is, and won. And won. And completed, one of the rare winners. Completed the dark room. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but thanks. I'm just <laughs> telling you. I've got me dog tags. Yeah. Um, talk to her. Just tell me... In brief, if you can, I can. What the I dark can. room is? Give well, us the dark room pitch, and then we'll. Oh uh... no! Well, the dark room uh, remains the world's only live-action video game. Uh, it is a an interactive text adventure uh, played principally by groups of people ranging from fifty to two thousand, all together at once in a darkened space, voting um, on which of four moves yeah, to take. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I appear, four options appear behind me on the screen. Get the options right, everything's fine. Get them wrong, you're dead. And the options are things like go north, go find north, light switch. Find light switch, sleep, yeah. Um, it, it actually began life as a very quick routine I had about how shit 1980s games were because it would be, you know, it was always like, you're in a dark room, what, what will you do? Find light switch. How will you find the light switch? You're in a dark room. You need the light switch to see. Do you see? I see. Bullshit, you see. You're in a dark room, right? Uh, so it's all, it's all that kind of ethos there. And it's deliberately uh, almost impossible to solve. Almost impossible. It's deliberately impossible. frustrating, infuriating. Yeah, exactly. We had, a, we had a kid. It's theatre of cruelty, you know. We had a kid the other day... Um, you know, just say to me, she was like, you just, you just say every option is stupid. You just say, you say it's stupid. So, so what's right? You know, and I went, look, look, you know, you've got to, I went, look, the game's winnable. It takes 21 correct moves to get out, right? Because that's where it's... And it's instant death when they yeah. fuck up. They oh, the minute yeah. they fuck up. And she went, what's a correct move? And I went, maybe a correct move is the one that don't kill you. Right. And then she went, oh... You know, so that was a nice moment. Of course, that's a misleading statement, though, because 
the correct moves are not necessarily the ones that don't kill you, right? They're the ones that don't kill you and move you towards the exit, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as a general statement, not dying in the game is a positive thing. And Brendan described it in um, uh, uh, RPG terms, in Dungeons and Dragons yes, terms. He, he said did. the head is... Is it the head is aberrant neutral? Uh, I can't remember what head it is. Chaotic neutral. Chaotic neutral, chaotic but neutral. no good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, I no. remember. <laughs> well, uh, the thing is, the thing is, good will be rewarded, um, but no crime can go unpunished. Yeah, which okay. I think, I, I think actually might make him. Um, I, I think makes him lawful evil. Yes. Um, yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> I, I don't know, Brent, Brent. You know, both of us have, have mulled this over a few times. Uh, yeah, but at, like, the, at the end of the day, it's a comedy show. That, like you said, it's comedy of cruelty. It's theater yeah, of exactly. Cruelty. It's theater of cruelty. You're yeah. deliberately trying to trample on the. It's like the bit at the end of the computer game Jet Set Willy. You die, yes. and a foot, a great big yes. foot on a long leg, comes down and squashes you. And yeah. that basically happens over and over again to the audience's dreams. That's right. With jokes are plenty. Yeah, and people. The and the thing is, people get together and they're all chanting, you know, and we're just having a wild time. Like when when we have a moment where. There, okay, there's an option that reads Abandon Hope. Now, I'm doing, I do the show for all ages, right? I do it for kids, I do it for adults, and I don't change the show for the children, you know? I just don't say fuck, except yesterday when I did accidentally. Oh, well, that's fine. They got over it pretty quickly, actually. Um, there's this option that just reads Abandon Hope, right? And when people pick Abandon Hope, right, it descends into wordplay momentarily. Because it's, if you're going to abandon hope, why don't you abandon her sister's faith and love and charity? I never said you were alone in the dark room. There were four little girls with you. And you've just abandoned them. Now they're dead. How does that make you feel? Right. And then when the four options that come up, the option that people pick most often is steal their things. Yeah. Everyone does that. Children, adults, everyone. <laughs> they get over the fact they've killed these little girls they didn't know about really fucking fast and they want to steal their things. But then I'm just going to say, there's something infinitely wonderful about what then follows, right? Because this happened at the kids' show. I, I will then go, that is the mark of a true gamer. To hell with the dead kids. Loot their corpses. Loot their corpses. And there's something about watching a sea of eight-year-olds chant loot their corpses <laughs> loot their corpses which you know it's fairly telling about how people work and is it is there some element that's kind of almost like Westworld whereby mm. you as the overarching intelligence get to learn something about the human condition yeah. by making hundreds and thousands of people jump through hoops oh, that you've set oh absolutely you know like you people will do a lot of things I mean I think everyone this but people do a lot of things in a virtual world that they wouldn't do in real life sure. people will do a huge amount of things in a group that they won't they wouldn't normally do um people you know will quite happily follow a charismatic enjoyable person regardless almost almost regardless of the nature of their content provided they enjoy the um the manner in which it's presented and, and does it, did you find it empowering as an artist oh, very to create a thing which was virally successful, millions upon millions yeah. of YouTube hits? Yeah. And, I... and also something which does serve mm. your uh, outsider identity status. Yeah. Well, it kind of rewards you for like, you, you, you were mm. right to be a weirdo and an outsider. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is now I don't, um, you know, I mean, I'm 33. I don't, I don't feel like an outsider now. I think, I think if anyone, was clinging to the notion that they were a loner 
you know, at, at this age. Oh, Christ, you know, like just to, to kill as many people as possible and then turn the gun on yourself because that's, you, that's what you want to do. That is not official advice. No, of course, it's not, of, course, of course it's not official advice, but you know what I'm talking about? I'm, I'm, sure. I'm talking to the sort of unfuckable dickhead who at this, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm alone, I'm this person, I'm the dangerous outsider. No, 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 no. What I am right now, okay, is I'm a loving family man who in my local community is a tolerable eccentric, you know? I am a character and that's fine. Everybody is, you know? All, all of that is lovely. With Darkroom, and I, I just I just want to speak to something I said before, right, because it was about people following things, like, regardless of their content. Um, I mean, obviously, the people, like, people analyse Darkroom, and they analyse it very intelligently. And the mo- I think the most important thing with it is that there's, there's room in it for other people's contributions, and that's what gives it its power. Because um, I, I felt like I'd, I'd done my audience a disservice there, because I was essentially saying, "You like the package, you." But sure, it, you know, sure. When, when, when it I, is an interactive experience, yeah, and there's but, joy to be found in that. Yeah, but it, like, I think the implication that I was saying, like, really, it was meant to be more of a self burn of being like, "Well packaged, no content, right?" Which you know is how I describe myself. Okay.